Welcome to another edition of Tech Writer Voices. My name is Tom Johnson and I am your host. Tech Writer Voices is a podcast specifically for technical writers. We cover news, tips, information, interviews, all related to technical writing. So this is definitely something you want to check out if you're into podcasts and you are a technical writer. Now, before we get into the, the interview today, which is with Tom Howler, an information architect, I just want to make a couple of notes here. First, if you've recorded your chapter's presentation and want to play it on here, I would be more than happy to. Just send me the link, and I will link it on here. We currently have 301 subscribers. I was pretty excited that we broke the 300 mark. Of course, that number fluctuates daily, but we have a lot of people that you can reach. So if you'd like to syndicate your content to the most people possible, Send me the link and I will play it on here, just straight, uh, whatever you edit, however you edited your file. Also, if you look at the site, techwritervoices.com, you'll see a button on the top toolbar that says, Next Podcast Questions. So I'm trying something new here. I want to incorporate the audience more fully. I want you to be able to ask the questions of the podcast. So rather than just having it be a, an experience where you listen, I want you to Think about what sorts of questions you would like to know for for the next topic, and then submit them as a comment there, and they will appear. And I I'm, will probably ask them to the person. Our, our next podcast that I have lined up is on RoboHelp Six. So if you if you're a RoboHelp user or if you're just interested in that topic, give me your questions. Now today we have an interview with Tom Haller. And Tom Haller is an information architect. He's also the director of the Center for Plain Language. And he's going to tell us today how to create a site where users can actually find the information they're looking for. I know it's quite common that you go to a website and, and you can never find what you want. Tom says, or he found a statistic that says that 60% of the time, this is what users experience. They simply cannot find the information they're looking for on the site. He's got a method which has an acronym of GECKO, Gather, Evaluate, Chunk, Know, Optimize, for creating and organizing the information of a site. And he'll also talk about some issues of clarity, plainness in writing. And finally, he'll, he'll explain how the use of plain language helped the state of Washington collect an extra 800 grand in revenue in addition to his duties at the Center for Plain Language. Tom also teaches information design at the University of Maryland and information engineering at Johns Hopkins University. So let's go to the interview. Yeah, your site is excellent, so it's, it was really interesting to read. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you, you run the Center for Plain Language, you're a teacher, you're a consultant, um, just give me the details. <laughs> well, the the details, uh, in part, <laughs> are that I'm a, I might be a crazy advocate. I don't know. I am someone who uh, strongly believes we have the opportunity to make the complex clear, and um, I am someone who worked in government consulting in technical communication, professional communication for many years, 
and I could see how the work I was doing was marginalized, and um, and I was grumpy about it, and I had an opportunity at one point to decide, you know, do I want to stay in this, uh, I called it a, a mauve cubicle experience, but did I want to stay in the mauve cubicle, or did I want to, you know, step out beyond that and move a little bit closer to my, my passion? And, and really, my, my passion was just this heartfelt belief uh, we, that we can make the complex clear and that a lot of government work uh, was directed towards, you know, how is it that we can meet the contract requirements and get out a deliverable rather than what is it that this product we are creating is doing and how is it that this product we are building is really supporting people. So when I stepped out on my own, I was, uh, you know, very, I guess, overly passionate <laughs> about that, that opportunity. How can we make the complex clear? Uh, how can we enable people to find the information they need, uh, you know, use it, get on with the rest of their lives, and, and appreciate the experience? And in a lot of my teaching, I, I talk about that element of appreciation. It's not just that we're getting the content we want, but we appreciate that the content is structured in such a way that we can use it. And, um, and that opportunity then as a technical or professional communicator to enable people to get the content they want, and then that opportunity for us on that user side to be able to... Um, access, you know, to use, to appreciate uh, that content, you know, it, it's a wonderful interchange, and, uh, and I wanted to move more toward it, so, towards it, so um, that's how I've ended up in this teaching, consulting, uh, leading position. You, you really began with plainlanguage.gov. That was the first site that you got a chance to implement some of your user um, ideas. Can you my, 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 pa- my passion? <laughs> yeah. You know, in a way, I mean, uh, before that, I, I had worked with a number of, of clients and, you know, uh, supported them in, in, you know, building, uh, moving their ideas forward and, and crafting content that supports people. But as a volunteer... I, I was a, I was a teacher, I have been a teacher in an information architecture class since 1998, and our class here in Washington is one of the first to both use that term information architecture and then teach it as as part of a, a class for adults. So that class um, had the we had a class project, and I had um, in well actually let me back up. Uh, I was teaching a class uh, also at the same time with um, in Baltimore for Johns Hopkins University. And at that time, we were learning about usability testing, and, and, and I was very curious about the plainlanguage.gov site because at, at, at that point, you know, uh, sites were improving and that site had yet to move up to its potential to really be uh, a resource that, you know, people internationally could access and easily move through and get their jobs done. So I uh, 
inquired with that group that was managing that site, a group called Plain, which is the really the federal response to say, let us make content clear in the federal sector. And I uh, contacted Annette Cheek, who ran that program, and, and said, hey, uh, would you like to work with a Johns Hopkins class to uh, um, undergo some usability testing to find some strategies to uh, craft content and structure to make people's lives easier? And she said, sure. So uh, she traveled with me to Baltimore, and really that trip between Washington and Baltimore, Annette, as many know, is 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 an evangelist about plain language, and by the time I got to Baltimore, I was hooked. I mean, I've always been a, a professional communicator, technical communicator, and but that label plain language kind of bugged me. I kind of thought, oh, you know, are we crafting boring language, or are we not paying attention to the information design and the visual structure, which I found so important. But writing up there with Aneta and... and uh, feeling her passion i was like wow <laughs> you know i'm 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 a believer so uh, i then helped shepherd that uh johns hopkins class through a conversation and exploration into that site and we came up with a, heuristic, a number of heuristic analyses that said you know here are some ways you can improve the site so I took those findings back to the federal group who had developed the site. I said, this is what these uh, usability students discovered. Uh, and they said, okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> uh, who's going to build it? And so then I had this information architecture class, the group I'd been working with, well, each semester a new group, but uh, a class that had uh, changed and evolved in, since 1998, and I thought, well, I'll bring that class into the actual uh, architecture then of a new site. And that's what we did. And we followed a, a process that I teach. I refer to it as GECKO, but it <clears throat> stands for Gathering, Evaluating, Chunking, Knowing, the Testing Phase. And uh, then um, O is, I'm thinking, operationalized, but it, it's optimizing. Uh, it's that looking back at what measures did you set at the beginning. So that gathering phase is not just collecting information, but it's saying, you know, what measures will we pay attention to in terms of uh, audience and what they want to do and how they evaluate success. So it's a, it's a performance framework in which we then build sites. And uh, we applied that construct to the plain language site, um, and it's been very successful. Now, before you get more into the framework that you're describing, the Gecko framework. <laughs> before I yak more. <laughs> can you just tell me what was wrong with the plainlanguage.gov site? And, and generally, what is wrong with many websites that aren't built with the user in mind? Well, well it, it was a product of its time. It was a compilation of a lot of content that people had collected across different agencies. So when they brought it together, they just said, okay, how can we mush this together? And it's like the question, I, I, I refer to it almost as a noun question. How is it that we can get this together? How can we just mush this stuff together? So you're looking more at the product 
rather than the use of the product. So what we did in class is instead of asking, how can we get this stuff together, we said, how is it that we can structure this document so people can do what they want to do? So it's a verb focus instead of that kind of noun focus of, yeah, what have we got? You know, how can we get it on the site? And and I think it's, you know, increasingly we're seeing organizations moving toward that verb focus. I think that's been really the the shift in the last few years and the place where uh, technical communicators, information architects, uh, others, you know, in our profession can really lend a hand. So you start to focus on what the user wants to do with the site. Uh, so, so what did you do? Did you begin a spreadsheet? I mean, did you have different audiences that you tried to profile, and how did you go about well, defining that? Well, I, I, I guess initially I teach a, a construct. Um, imagine if you held a triangle in front of your face, and if you, you know, put your fingers together so your top fingers were the top of the triangle, and your thumbs became the bottom of that triangle, and you look through it. You know, you notice that there's stuff you put in and there's stuff you leave out. So if you look through that triangle, what you see at the top or, or what you see uh, are the three corners of a triangle. And you ask, okay, what is it that makes up this triangle? And it's audience. You know, who are you crafting this content for? Purpose. What is it that this audience wants to do with this content? And the context. What's this? What are their measures of success? What are your measures of success? How is it that that influences what ends up inside this product? How is it that it influences the structure and the tone we use inside this product? So it's that, I guess, triangle. Uh, I might refer to it as a rhetorical triangle, but it's that that place where we start to say who 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 is in there using this product. So then we start to explore. So it's like, who are the users? So a lot of the techniques that are used, you know, in a lot of organizations, uh, identifying personas. Uh, what personas offer is is an understanding of kind of the, the, the sort of person who is going into this environment. But what I like about personas is that they can be very verb-driven. So it's like, what is it these people want to do? So even as you build a persona sheet to get to know about Barbara, you know, what is it Barbara wants from the plain language site? You know, what is it uh, that specifically that she wants to do? How is it that the structures and content can support her in getting her job done? So um, what, what, what are her measures of success? So it's always working within that rhetorical construct that, you know, we're able to uh, focus on the individuals who are, you know, trying to get their jobs done, trying to appreciate the experience. Does the mission statement factor into this triangle at all? At one place on your site, you said that that the mission statement or the vision gives structure and structure gives a framework for possibility. Is that separate or is that involved mm-hmm. here? No, that's, in, that's, in, that's involved. I mean, if you're working with an organization... You want to ask. Uh, I, I, it's a performance-based framework, is how I like to think of it. And um, you know, how is it that that organization can perform better, or how is it that people within that organization can perform better? How is it that their 
um, clients can perform better. I mean, that's that's really what why they're spending the dollars as they are, you know, to build a site to support their constituents. So one of the questions that's key is, you know, why does this organization exist? And then the second question is, what is it about this site that's then supporting their mission? So, I mean, any organization exists for a certain reason, and then the communication products that come out of that organization have to support that mission. Otherwise, you know, they, they often fail. And, and I think it's important to ask those questions early on. And I've worked with organizations as a consultant where I've asked those questions. What is your mission and how does the site support it? And, and they've not been able to articulate their mission. They're not sure why they're there. They're, uh, you know, people are coming in different directions. Well, it's very hard then to build a communication product to support that group. And, you know, sometimes as a, as a consultant, I might step back and say, hey, let's talk about that, or why don't you take some time to talk about that? So um, mission's, mission's important. It's important to the organization that's crafting the content, and it's important in a way then to those people who are accessing that content. I want to talk a little bit more about this performance factor, the, the purpose part of the triangle that you're, you're describing. So let's say a reader goes to plainlanguage.gov right, or, or some other site. Don't they mostly just want to get information? What other kind of purposes um, would they be going to a site for? Well, I can, you know, we all, a lot of people say, oh, don't they want information? It's a, it's a very broad statement. I mean, anytime I go to the in, Internet, you know, I say, I want information. So I guess the question for an information architect or uh, a technical professional communicator is to say, well, really, what tasks do they want there? And I like to refer to um, Edward Tufte's uh, research and, and, and writing where he, he says that uh, human beings often want to, um, I'm thinking discern, that's not the word that I want. Um, they want to compare, they want to contrast. I love the word they want to differentiate. So that's sort of a starting place that I want, you know, kind of start. You know, I kind of say, well, you know, what are they comparing? What are they contrasting? What are they differentiating? It's not that I just want, I want information. But, but it's often, you know, those tasks that dig that force you to dig deeper in there. So I think often, you know, in our in our jobs, you know, uh finding out why people want to use communication products, we want to get at those verbs. And uh so that whole purpose piece, I encourage my students to go off into, you know, their organizations and come back with task lists, you know, 100 tasks that people want out of there. They want, you know, they want to analyze, they want to discern, they want to compare, they want, they want to uh, evaluate, they want to analyze, they want to understand, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth beyond I want information. Great. And, and yeah, I think it's, a, it, yeah, it's that depth that, you know, that I think we all often offer, you know, in this profession. Now, 
after the the information architect gathers this um, this performance uh, information about you know what the user wants to do content what they want and and you know that the gathering you know I love contextual interviews how is it that people are you know you know what what information is it what are they doing on the job you know to get the sense of of context so after that gathering let me allow you to ask the question <laughs> so what's the next step in this gecko process i talk about evaluating so we might gather a lot of information but then we have to step back we have to perhaps hold up our triangles and say you know what is it that the people who are coming into this uh, context want? What do they want to do? How do they evaluate success? So it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's a structure I teach to kind of say, let us not forget that evaluation. It's not always that we gather and then we evaluate. And, you know, and then we move on, you know, it's like we're always attending to that evaluation, I think. But, but I think it's important to include it, you know, in, if I'm teaching, for example, a gecko process, uh, it reminds the students and, uh, and me <laughs> that it's so important to constantly refer back to, you know, that, that those questions of, of audience and purpose and context. All right, your, your next step in this gecko process is chunk. Is this where you draw a taxonomy or a hierarchy of information, or what exactly do you well, do? Well, the, the, I guess we could use um, plain language, uh, the plain language redesign it as an example. I, I guess in the chunking phase, uh, we stepped back and we said, what content do we have? So in a lot of the gathering, there are content analyses, for example. So what con what is, what's all this content that we have? What are these, you know, task lists that we have? What is it that people want to do on this site? And how is it that we fit together? And so it's, um, you know, a, a lot of mixing and matching. You're, you're saying what clusters fit together? Um, what, what do they seem to fit together uh, in, in, in chunking, um, I mean, in, in both the classwork and then in, in consulting work, I mean, I, it's, it's one where I'm inclusive to allow different people, different audiences to come in and say, this is how I see things fitting together. It's a very collective stage, but what you're working for is to build some clusters in which you then might say, you know, this content fits together. So it's, um, it's, it's iterative, it's dynamic, it's, um, it's fun uh, to just, you know, talk about, well, why is it that you, you know, see the clusters that you do? Um, I always like to refer back to Richard Saul Werman's um, structure called latch where he talks about inherent structures of information that people think in terms of location alphabet time 
category and hierarchy. And so that latch function is one where where I or my students might step back and say, is there a location structure that we can bring in here? Is there an alphabetic structure? Are there, you know, which, how is it the categories are um, creating themselves? And, um, you know, the, the, the nature of presenting categories and, and finding groupings is such that you're placing it out there and then making it available for testing. And that's what happens then in the K, you know, part of my gecko structure, that knowing phase, that well, testing phase. Well, wait, before we move on to K, I have some questions about the chunking phase. Now, okay. In the chunking phase, do you do card sorting? Yep. Yep, that's a technique. Um, so an example might be a, um, an intranet project I worked on. I facilitated a work team. So the work team was exploring how is it that we can make you know, this intranet that serves 17,000 people more understandable. So they came from different parts of the, you know, uh, work community there. And uh, in the chunking phase, they had really kind of noun and verb content. It's sort of like uh, this, this mix of, you know, the content that was available and the content that people wanted. Because I think what happens a lot in, in building sites, you know, people look just at, okay, what content do we have available? And then they say, okay, we got this, check. You know, and they're not asking what is it that people want. So in this sort, our uh, colleagues looked both at clustering, you know, the content that people wanted and the content that was available. And I guess I had something like eight tables, <laughs> you know, of, of clusterers going. And then what we did is we brought those card sort results together and looked at those and said, what are the patterns in those results? So that was a, a really, you know, interesting way to bring disparate ideas together, bring them through a work team, uh, and kind of then say, what, what patterns, what similarities are we finding here? And that's what you're trying to do in, in a card sort. There are different ways to do card sorts, and, uh, you know, I like to make them as broad as possible and hear from so, as many people as possible and and what those card sorts are doing is is uh, supporting us in saying you know here are some groupings that probably will test well probably will you know um, make sense to the, the human beings who come in to you know look at the patterns that we're now going to lay out in a paper prototype for example and and I guess that's what and that's what we do now, when you do card sorting, do you do index cards or like an electronic thing like cardsort.net or com, whatever sites index are? Card. Index really? card. So, yeah, I, um, uh, well, I don't, I don't always personally have grand success using the electronic tools. <laughs> and, and as, uh, I guess, a professional, I work a lot as a facilitator and, uh, you know, and it's fun to work with real humans, you know, exchanging ideas. Now, 
I, I work in uh, in Washington D.C. where you know we've got lots of information to sort, and a lot of people here doing that. So, you know, it's I guess easier to have people available than if you're, you know, working with a lot of people electronically, and and then you know your best business decision is is an electronic card sort. So it's it's not that you know I rule out electronic card sorts. It's just that you know, the people are here in terms of the work that I have done. So both in my classes, people are there, or in terms of my professional work, you know, people are there. I've worked with people and sorting index cards. Are there any rules, general rules of thumb that you keep in mind when you're sorting and chunking this information? I've heard some people say that uh, you shouldn't present the reader with more than seven to eight options at the top level, 10 to 15 options at the second, and not to go more than three to four levels deep. I mean, are these are there any kind of basic principles about how to chunk and set things yeah, up? Well, well, you know, there, 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 are, there are rules of thumb in terms of how people process information. And so I guess in my card sorting, it's, it comes after a, a certain, you know, bit of you know, education and conversation about what happens in human beings' heads. And, and we know, you know, generally from the research that, you know, people go bonkers if you, you know, have too many, you know, uh, clumps, <laughs> you know, that as humans we, we like smaller groupings rather than larger groupings, it's easier for us to process. So, you know, I guess it's not that I take any, I'm not demonstrative to say thou shalt only have, you know, ten sorts. Um, But, you know, we're certainly open to saying, you know, hey, if you have this many, are there any other ways we might group some clusters together? Um, and you know it 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 works out. I mean, I don't I don't find that that I have to you know stomp my heels and 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 demand certain numbers. Um, but I but I I think it's I think it's useful and educational to say if you end up with thirteen numbers, just say, hey, wait a minute, people are going to have a little tough time here. What can we do to help them out? And then we do. Um, can we move on to the no set, the no part? What what exactly do you mean by no? So the no is as in K N O W. So you know I know I know <laughs> K N O W listening to uh, you know our voices here. Uh, that's uh, you know a little hard to see, but it's it's the it's that word gecko, and it's just the testing phase and. Um, if it were T for test, then the, then it would be gecko, and that wouldn't be as easy to remember. <laughs> so really, the K um, has to do with what is it, it that idea that the people who are testing know a lot, and it's that opportunity for us to learn from them and to um, say what structures are you creating in your head, and why is it that you know these groupings aren't working for you so it's uh, it's the it's the testing phase and and the k is the letter in this gecko framework i refer to how, how do you obtain your feedback from your users do you 
do you sit them down and interview them, or do you watch them, or how? Um, think aloud protocols, I guess, is, is the structure that I find most valuable uh, in any kind of uh, test. So what I do, let's, let's envision that we've gone through a process where we've gathered a lot of content, uh, evaluated, made sure that this fits what we're doing, we've clustered it, chunked it into groupings, and now we're at a testing phase. I'm a big believer in paper prototypes. I've discovered through my teaching this information architecture class for years that, you know, the you can just scrawl stuff, you know, onto a page and begin to get feedback on it. So, you know, any, you know, oh, we will now wait three weeks while we build out a Photoshop, you know, um, structure. It's, it's time that could be spent just jumping right into, into testing and, and listening to people and, and finding out what sense are they making of the structures. So that's what is going on in that testing phase. And your last step is optimizing content. The optimizing phase uh, is, I guess, a reflective phase. It's to look back at the measures of success that you set at the beginning. Uh, a good example, in fact, is the plain language site because when we did our initial interviews, when we asked questions about, you know, what is it that people want from this site, an answer that we kept hearing repeatedly was they want before and after samples. So when we built the site, you know, we went about building it and attending to many things, <laughs> and, but then we got to the optimizing phase, and what we did is we looked back at those measures, and we said, wait a minute, you know, people are really wanting before and after samples. Um, you know, are we building enough relationships, enough opportunities for them to get to those before and after samples? So what we did then is we then went through the site almost page by page and said, can we on this page build, you know, a relationship, add a link that says, get, you know, get before and after samples. And I think we built those on something like 23 pages. So by attending to really what is it people wanted from that site, to go back at the end to look at those allowed us an opportunity to make some changes at the end that weren't big changes, but enabled those users to come closer to what they wanted from the site. And that's what happens in that optimizing phase. When you say you had before and after links on the pages, you mean you had a, a link that showed what what that page was like before you? No, that was it, it's the plain language side. So uh, one of the uh, elements or one of the opportunities in plain language is you can say here is a page, here here is text that here is a regulation that an agency wrote that was very confusing, but after it was recrafted using principles of plain language, it was more understandable. So um, when, if you go to plainlanguage.gov and click before, after, uh, you will get to uh, a series of before and after samples. In fact, there's some wonderful before and after samples on the site. We're working right now to uh, build out a database 
um, to actually serve those up in a in a visually more interesting way, and that's one of our projects for 2007. I'm, I'm still involved through the uh, Center for Plain Language. I'm still involved in the plainlanguage.gov website. Scott Abel told me that you were um, an article in the Associated Press basically said that plain language helped the state of Washington collect an extra $800,000 in revenue. Can you give me the story on that? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, the, the Center for Plain Language is, is still working to uh, uncover more of the details. And in fact, I have an interview set up for next week. But um, the you know, guts of the story there is that the state had a letter that was requesting that people send them tax dollars um, that were due. You know, uh, organizations, businesses owed tax, and the letter said, hey, you owe us some tax. But instead of being straightforward and saying, hey, you owe us some tax, <laughs> um, it, it was written in a bureaucratic structure that people kind of went, what is this? You know, and, and tossed it aside. So the governor of the state of Washington said, we should craft content that people can understand. And and through executive order, which has now been repeated in the, with Governor Christ in the state of Florida, they uh, requested that agencies write in a way that people understand. So this letter that you're referring to was recrafted that said, hey, you owe us some tax. Um, people then said, oh, I owe them some tax, sent it in, and the state uh, saw an increase of $800,000. $800, wow, that's really interesting. It is. It's a great tale. And, and it's, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not the only tale. I know that Veterans Administration in Washington has a similar experience where they um, recrafted a letter um, using principles of plain language, which are basically, you know, audience-focused principles. And by doing so, they were, uh, you know, able to save significant dollars. And one of the uh, my, my my work is as a volunteer for the Center for Plain Language. I am, uh, you know committed to getting these stories from places like Washington State and, you know, the Veterans Administration and, uh, you know, celebrating those stories, saying this is what happened and, and, and making those stories available for all of us in the technical communication community because they're great stories for us to share with our bosses and, and with our organizations and, and say, look, you know, look at the value that we you know, are bringing you because there is such great value in the work we do. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the principles for plain language. Um, you, you mentioned on your site that a lot of times we clutter our writing. Can you expand on that and why you think that might be something that can Well, I, I guess, I, I guess um, you know, plain language practitioners um, follow really some you know basic guidelines. One is write to your audience. So if you are writing to someone and you are saying, "Hey, pay us some taxes," well, 
you can use second person to write, hey, pay us some taxes, rather than, you know, it would be in the best interest of the state if the, if the uh, recipient of this letter were to, you know, include some tax money into, you know, an envelope. <laughs> I, I don't know, but it's, you know, this kind of second... In, or, or this third-person convoluted structure is, um, you know, how, and we, we, we see it a lot in, in, in government language. The, um, uh, some people refer to them as abstract nouns or, or nominalizations. You know, there has been a determination that, rather than saying, we determined or we found. You know, and uh, plain language is, uh, that recognition that content can be more straightforward and just uh, enable somebody to understand it much easier. So, um, you know, I, I guess it's those principles that we espouse. <laughs> you know, this discussion about plain language and, and government brings to mind the classic essay by George Orwell, Politics in the English Language. Yep. Certainly, certainly the government's sort of bureaucraties and the obfuscation of their language is nothing new. Why is it such a tradition? I mean, is there, is there, is the government trying to purposely confound people or do they just have a long tradition? (laughs) You know, it it is, it is in part a tradition. Um, And, and in fact, the Center for Plain Language is kind of, um, you know, we're, we're, we have a, a little research team kind of exploring uh, some of those those traditions, we, we you know it is it is no surprise that that language changes and evolves, um, and I think that as we're you know underway in this new century, that you know people are just expecting clarity. We we certainly expect clarity when we go online and we're trying to get the content we need. So we're expecting that from government. We're looking at government for a service. How is it that I can differentiate between these two, you know, plans that you're offering me? How is it that I can make the decision I need to make? And, uh, you know, content uh, can be structured in such a way to support us. I mean, there is a significant amount of research that supports, you know, uh, strategies for crafting more understandable and clear content. And, and I think increasingly people are recognizing that literature exists, that it's possible, and, and it's that idea of possibility that, that really uh, influences me and my work, you know, that belief that, yes, it is possible to structure information so people can find what they want and use it and appreciate the experience. And that's where we started in our conversation. Now, is the government applying a policy to ensure that documents are run through the Center for Plain Language? Is there any kind of insurance that this is going to be something that's mandatory? Oh, or is it still... uh, last year, I mean, it, it's um, ways government you know, shares these ideas, might be through executive order, like we're seeing in the state of Washington and the state of Florida, and we've, you know, I think all of us as citizens appreciate that. Um, in Congress last year, there was a uh, a bill, or, a, or a, it was moving through Congress, um, the Plain Language in Regulations Act of 2006, 
and what that act uh, was would have mandated would have been uh, that regulations, government regulations, uh, are crafted in plain language, and the, the content in the bill actually uh, was constructed to say this is what plain language is. And that's what you see in the state of Florida. That's what you see in the state of Washington, too. Some uh, content that says plain language is, you know, constructed for the reader, with the reader in mind, and that it's built in such a way that it's more second-person focused, you know, rather than, you know, using this, you know, is word and these uh, abstract nouns. All right, I, I just have a small question here, but is there a, a, a difference between the adjective plain versus clear? No, no. You know, plain language is a label. You know, in the state of Washington, you'd call it plain talk. I think in in Florida, they're calling it plain English. Um, plain, you know, at first, I kind of was a little concerned about that label, plain, um, because I thought, oh, does this take into account the research in information design? But we have on our board, for example, some of the leaders in information design. Karen Shriver, for example, is very active in the plain language movement. She's uh, the... Um, author of a phenomenal book, Dynamics on Document Design. Um, and, you know, it's just the label that, that's used. I think in Washington State they call it plain talk or clear talk. You know, it's so the, the point is the same as for any of us as professional writers, as technical communicators, how is it we can craft content and structure so people can understand it and use it and appreciate the experience. Are there any kind of programs that you use to ensure that the, the sentence structure level is a certain grade level? Like, you know, Ooh, that, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, those kind of grade level programs are uh, they are one way to assess, you know, the ability of people to use that content. Um, but but there's a lot of research, cognitive research, that uh, I think uh, is that research just like that uh, kind of saluted in the technical professional communication community that uh, I think uh, is given a little bit higher value. But but there are you know there are there are software programs and a number of things. A plain writer is one that comes to mind um, that can help people, you know, reshape their language to make it more understandable. Well, Tom, that's about all the questions that I that I have. Do you have anything else you'd like to add about the Center for Plain Language or Well, or well I, I, I guess I'd, I'd, you know, like any uh, director would encourage people to uh, drop by uh, the Center for Plain Language. We're at centerforplainlanguage.org. Um you know, we are the folks who now are responsible for maintaining and improving the site plainlanguage.gov, which is the resource that's uh, used internationally to support people in terms of their writing. Um, we encourage friends uh, to join us, uh, to be a friend. It's a $10 investment. We, uh, you know, recently we're pricing beverages over at Starbucks and discovered, you know, you could get two 
two frosty beverages, uh, or you could join the Center for Plain Language for ten bucks. So, you know, I, I think it's a good investment for you know anyone in the professional communication community because what we're doing is we're advocating uh, for government, such as. Um, you know, support Florida State, you know, these governor, uh, governors that are um, bringing in plain language uh, legislation as well as, you know, the federal legislation to improve the structure of regulations. And it, it takes a lot of energy and, uh, you know, really dollars to move these political campaigns forward. And certainly uh, it's an opportunity for any of us you know, who have been professional communicators to say, wow, somebody is representing us, you know, uh, legislatively. And uh, that's part of what we're doing. And we are, you know, backing the research, funding research programs, uh, and developing a number of education materials. And, you know, you can check us out at plainlanguage.org. And... Um, and and drop me an email. I mean, I'm at TomHaller.com. That's a T-H-O-M, Haller, H-A-L-L-E-R. Um, and I'm happy to answer questions from anybody. I mean, I'm... Uh, do, you sell, I, I'm do you sell T-shirts with a little triangle? With the, with the I, I, have triangle. The, I have buttons. I have buttons. I don't have T-shirts. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you plead, I can send you a button. <laughs> or if you attend one of my classes, you get a button for free. But uh, maybe maybe I'll move into T-shirts. I'll, I'll think about that. All right, Tom. Well, thanks for talking to me. I appreciate all your information. Well, well sure, Tom. Uh, thanks for uh, giving me a buzz and um, talking about the, the center and you know the uh, structures that we're using to reshape sites, among other things. You've been listening to Tech Writer Voices. An interview with Tom Haller, information architect, teacher, and consultant. If you would like to contact Tom, send him an email at tom at tomhaller.com. And note that he spells his name with an H, so that's T-H-O-M. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, you can do so by using the comment feature on this post. You can send me an email at tom at techwritervoices.com. And I do not spell my name with an H. Or you can simply write a blog post and link back to this uh, post, and and your blog will be excerpted in the comments of this post. It's a feature called Trackbacks. It's kind of neat to see that. Again, I, I recommend that if you would like to participate more rather than just listen, go and click the Next Podcast Questions button on this site, the top toolbar, and submit a question for the next podcast and we'll, we'll, I'll ask the person your question alright thanks for listening if you haven't subscribed yet uh, it's totally free it's just a matter of entering your email address or if you prefer RSS uh, look in the top right corner you'll see subscription information when new podcasts are posted you'll receive an email or if you're an RSS fan then you will see it in your, in your newsreader alright thanks for listening